Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. My name is Chad McLean. I am the host, and in today's episode, I interview Cameron Falloon the founder and joint CEO of BodyFit Training. Prior to creating BodyFit Training, Cam worked as a rehabilitation coordinator at the Geelong Cats, physical performance manager at Western Bulldogs, and high performance manager at the Port Adelaide Football Club. Highlights from the episode. We discussed the importance of keeping good records for your rehabilitation, the power of perspective and how our outlook can shape our reality. Strength and conditioning in elite sport is more than just being good at your job. Why developing SNC should study out of the most senior athletics coach they know. Before we start this episode, for our coaches listening to the podcast, I want to help you develop your own brand and online business. Join our Prepare Like a Pro Academy where you get full access to our high-performance presentations and ad-free podcasts, and I'll throw in a free one-on-one Zoom mentoring session with myself where we can discuss your brand and how Prepare Like a Pro can help your business. Join our academy today and email us with a link podcast, subject heading podcast, for this free consultation. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Cam. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Pleasure to be here, buddy. Looking forward to it. We'll, we'll, we'll dive right to the beginning of your career, mate. At what age did you discover you had a passion for health and fitness? Um, well, in terms of s and I was a bit of a late bloomer. Um, always had a passion for, for fitness and just being generally fit. I, as a young kid, I, I did every sport I could, and footy, cricket, surfing, swimming, um, you name it. So, um, But I, I, got, I got a pretty bad back injury when I was 18 playing football, and um, we're talking a long time ago, like, the, you know, in the, in the, uh, the, the 90s, early 90s. And, um, yeah, that, that was the first time, you know, as a young, strong kid um, who thought I was indestructible, that I, that I was being told, you know, you, you, it may be over for you. So yeah, right. I got told by a, um, a rheumatologist, I'd been to see everyone because I was having debilitating back pain and leg pain and, and um, nerve pain, sciatica, et cetera, that, um, you know, I was getting so many mixed messages back then, exercise rehabilitation um, and, and certainly exercise as a form of exercise rehabilitation um, just wasn't anywhere near what it is today. And one day I'll be, being told do flexion exercises, the next day it's do extension exercises, next day it's don't do anything. Um, and I went and saw a rheumatologist who, who sat me in his office and said, look, you're, you're done, you'll never play sport again, you're not going to be active. Um, and I was absolutely gobsmacked. I, I, to be honest, mate, I went, I went and sat in the car park for about 20 minutes and cried my eyes out and thought, Jesus, my life's over. And, um, and that, that was what really, really, I guess, woke me up to, gee, I don't actually know much about my body. Um, I am fit and I am strong, um, but not, not because I've gone through any training or there's been any methodology to it. It's just because I'm, I'm active and um, I look after myself. So that just led me to really researching, um, really trying to understand that there's just no way known I can fathom being 18 years of age and um, never being active again and never playing sport. Um, I just couldn't think what life was going to be going forward. So I ended up getting uh, onto a guy named... Uh, Gary Speck, who was a, a back surgeon and neurosurgeon, and um, 
uh, Gary said to me in a consultation, he said, look, I, I, can, I can do surgery on your back and um, I can basically do a, a remove part of the distance protruding. And um, he said, but it might last five days, it might last five months, it might last five years. He said, but what you've got an opportunity to do is go and get strong and look after yourself and maybe don't think about going and playing competitive sport, but you can, you can be active and you can be um, live, a, live a really, you know, positive, active life going forward. So I went home and thought, gee, I've got a back surgeon who's telling me he doesn't want to do surgery on my back. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that, so that's interesting. <laughs> and so uh, he actually said to me, you know, do you go to the gym? And, and at the time I didn't really. Like I, like I said, I surfed a lot. Um, I actually did a carpentry apprenticeship before I went to uni. So I was, I was doing an apprenticeship, so I was pretty strong. Um, you would have been out of work then as well, so no sport and... Yeah, mate. Yeah, I had to give everything up, and um, and so I thought, you know what? I actually don't know anything about really going to the gym, and and I thought, given I'm in a pretty bad way, I don't just want to go there and you know make it guesswork. Mm-hmm. So I, I enrolled in a um, a course at Monash University, the twelve month anatomy and physiology course, and um, it was sort of just an introductory course. Um, I guess what people would say now is a bridging course, and um, it really, really opened my eyes up. Um, more, more than anything that I didn't know enough about my body. And so from there, I, I did um, a VicFit course. So that's sort of your equivalent, I guess, to a certificate four these days. Um, yeah. And back then it was a 12-month thing. And again, I just, I learned enough to know that I didn't know enough. And, but what it did give me was the tools to be able to apply what I was learning to my own body at the time. And um, I had access to all of a sudden lecturers and tutors and stuff like that that I could ask more questions and point me in the right direction to try and get more information about my body. And so I, I essentially used myself as a bit of a test dummy. It sounds a bit strange, but with a pretty serious back, um, you know, disc injuries and um, spinal injuries, that you get very instantaneous feedback. Mm. And so if I'm lifting weights or I'm putting myself in a position when I'm exercising where I was, in, I was compromising myself or I didn't have a neutral spine or I wasn't bracing correctly, um, I got very, very instantaneous feedback. And, um, and so it became a real trial and error and I made heaps of notes and I kept a diary, I, you know, I logged everything. And I got to a point where, you know, a couple of years later, um, I remember going to the gym with some mates of mine who um, were, were absolute gym junkies and I never used to train with them because I just I knew that I had to just do my thing and not get sucked into the whole, you know, the, the male ego thing in the gym. Yep. And um, I went to the gym with them a couple of years later and um, I remember them just blown away by how strong I was. And I had no reference point because it took, I just didn't train with anyone. I did almost my own training. And so I was like, wow, this is, this is really interesting. You know, these guys go to the gym all the time and they're not that I was disabled, but they didn't have any injuries or they were completely able-bodied and didn't have any restrictions. And even though it was two years, you know, for a lot of people, they don't have, don't have the patience to, to go through that, but I had no choice. And it's like, far out, I've been able to not only learn so much through, through the studying, but just apply it. And there was so much learning in that. And I think for me, that was when I really, really thought, gee, there's something in this, like I'm really excited by this. And the thing that got me excited was I'd been to all these physios, osteos, Chinese medicine practitioners, like rheumatologists, you name it, I went there. And, um, and I thought none of them could really help me, but exercises helped me. And what about all the people out there who have back pain or shoulder pain or, or any, any other um, debilitating injury that, what about those people who aren't getting the advice that maybe they, they could be getting? And 
that was for me the, the start of it. I thought, far out, I've, I've been through some really significant um, discomfort and limitations in my life as a young kid. And now I'm back on my feet and I'm, I'm fully able and I'm strong and I'm running again, so to speak. I, I just really had a passion for, wow, there's, there's a lot of power in this. And if I can bring this to a lot of people and continue to learn and develop myself, maybe I can make a career of this. And, and at that time, we're talking about, you know, 19, oh, mate, uh, 1990 or 91. Oh, I've forgotten how long ago it is, a long time ago, um, showing my age. Um, it, it, you know, rehabilitation wasn't a thing in terms of as a career. There weren't people out there who were rehab specialists or conditioning specialists, et cetera. So um, not that I was thinking about conditioning with athletes. I was really focused on rehabilitation settings. And for me, that was just learning so much through movement. Um, and, and as we know, pain is a really good way to learn. Um, that was really what, I guess, lit the fire, mate. That's, that's where it all started for me. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. Um... Yeah, it's inspiring uh, for, for anyone, really, whether you're an athlete looking for performance or if you're um, someone that's in pain currently to use it as a driver and, and like you said, as a reference point, like, almost like it's your, your training buddy uh, in some sense. But uh, that's, yeah, that's awesome, mate. And, and you mentioned the research and how you didn't have the support, so you had to basically create your own structure and own program. Uh, were there, like, where, what was your main go-to that worked and were there some things that you did and trialled that, that didn't work and it is now still part of your philosophy? Like were there some, some tr- yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, there, there may have been places around, but like I don't recall Pilates back in 1990. I don't, I, you know, there wasn't Pilates centres or clinical Pilates or things like that. So um, I learned one of the things I really learned, which I think is applicable today, you know, in SNC and re- rehabilitation or, um, you know, even when, you, when you're upping training loads with athletes is that I realised that I couldn't make exponential jumps. Yeah, with yeah. trying to progress myself, that I had to have a really um, not conservative, but I just I just had to have an incremental approach. You know, I had to make a make a change with the program, understand that I wasn't going to go backwards, um, and this wasn't about performance. So we're still focusing on the injury, but almost you know consolidate that. Mm. That that then became the new base, and then I could just take another small incremental step. And whether that was changing a movement pattern. Um, you know, increasing the load, changing the base of support, whatever it was, I found out really early that I couldn't make incremental steps. And that's where I think ego got it, gets in the way sometimes that, you know, as I said earlier, guys in the gym in particular, just they get in and want to, you know, pump weights and squat heavy or deadlift heavy or bench press or whatever. I learned really quickly that I just couldn't do that. And I got really quick feedback. Um, and I guess, you know, when I talk about feedback, you know, it used to take me, I, I had one year where my left leg, where I get most of the pain, it took me about 10 minutes to walk up and down the hallway in my apartment, so, which, which wasn't a very big apartment. So um, I, I really learned through, you know, just small incremental changes in load or small incremental changes in a movement pattern, um, you know, a progression as such, or like I said, changing your base of support. I then started to really research, um, you know, core if you want to call it core which for me is a very broad term and not just abdominals but glutes and uh, multifidus and you know um, your QLs and your lats and everything else that's connected and um, just tried to understand as much as I could and I got onto actually you know Paul Check who probably a lot of people know and he's got a lot of good stuff but he can have a lot of kooky stuff as well yep um, and more than anything I really like what he was doing but but more than anything it stimulated thought for me it, it just made me want to read more and challenge my own thinking and I think I think what I learned through through things like reading Paul Check stuff was just to 
to develop critical thinking. And again, I was able to apply some of the stuff that he was preaching in a gym setting for myself and work out, okay, for me, is it working? Is it not working? Does it, did it actually make sense? Yeah. And I'd just go back to anatomy books and I'd, you know, I'd look at muscle insertions and acting, actions and innovations and go, is what, he, is what he's saying make sense? So that was, that was probably for me really, really important early on. That was where I got a lot of my research. And um, the other thing for me was I went to a Chinese medicine practitioner and um, unfortunately this gentleman's passed away. Some of the older people who might listen to this podcast would know he's very well known in Melbourne. He was called The Professor. Um, and I reckon he was in his late seventies when he met me. And, um, I remember him picking me up and shaking me and I don't know what he was doing to be quite honest, but he looked at my scans and scan results and I talked him through my pain and he did an assessment. He said, I'm going to treat you for six weeks and I'll get rid of you. I'm going to fix you. And he said, if I don't fix you, um, you're not going to pay. And I went to him a couple of times a week and he did needling and cupping and gave me herbs and all these weird stuff to take. And. And I've got to say, I was probably 90% better and he, he, wouldn't, he refused to, to allow me to pay him. And I, and I wanted to pay him because I felt just so much better and he, more than anything because of the pain relief. And so for me, again, it was just a, an under, again, another learning point where I was like, wow, there's, there's another area of, that I can study and research and um, try and understand, which is Chinese medicine and Eastern medicine, and, um, but, also the, but also the mind and what, what part of this with back pain in particular, is the mind playing and how can I try and train my mind um, to then train my body to overcome this. So I just learned really early on that there's, there's no one panacea, um, that you're not going to find all the answers in one place and that um, the more research you do, the better you're going to become and the more people you can speak to. And it's not that you're taking everything on board as gospel, but as I said, I learned really early that I had to critically evaluate things and I had to really break them down and assess them myself. And at the end of the day, I like to keep things simple, Jack. And if, it, if kind of at a really basic, simple level, it makes sense and it's commonsensical, um, then, I, then I'll give it a go. Um, it was a little bit too left of field and a bit crazy. And, you know, we've all seen the videos of masseurs slapping fish over the top of you and things like that, then I wouldn't give it a go. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of how I did my research, just by learning and thinking through it and um, picking up books and reading and, Fine. Um, yeah, yeah that, that was my path. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. That, um, that's really interesting. It, my uh, Chinese medicine fixed me as well. I was a chronic asthmatic, uh, spent a fair bit of time with hosp- in hospitals at a young age and would, you know, need to be on antibiotics the rest of my life was the prediction and grew out of it at 13, 14. Uh, Mum got me onto a Chinese herbalist and, yeah, the rest is history. So it's, it is pretty powerful stuff. And Paul Chek. Yeah. I've looked, I did his holistic lifestyle coaching course and yeah, a fair bit of it resonated with me. And I, I like that philosophy that you mentioned, like you don't take all of it on and just completely throw the rest of the stuff that you're doing, like throw the baby out of the bathwater, but you, you just implement these things and almost just um, try it on for what resonates with you. And um, it sounds like you've, you've got a, a good balance between the objective data and the research and the science, but also understand the importance of, of trusting your instinct and common sense. Um, yeah, absolutely, and and I think I think that journey that I was almost forced to go on when, when you talk about coaching and strength and conditioning, um, you know, there's there's the science and then there's the art, and mm-hmm. the art takes so long to build, and and you so you know all that objective stuff that you've got in front of you as a as a conditioning coach, and 
whether it's GPS data or force plate data, et cetera, et cetera, um, then, there's, then there's the art of knowing the athlete, their psychology, their movement, their moods. Um, you know, t- to be honest, you know, the, 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 the tone in their skin and the, the, the shine in their skin sometimes when they're really peaking versus when they're off. Um, I think it sounds funny, but I, I just wasn't aware, but all of these things were just building over years that I wasn't aware of. And it wasn't probably until really late in my career that I realized that those foundations were laid right at the start. And it was, and it was being open to things like Chinese medicine. You know? um, I, remember, I remember in AFL clubs in the mid 2000s, if, if you said to the, the physios of the doc, look, I wouldn't mind sending you know, Gary Ablett to the Chinese medicine guy, like, whew, I'd probably get sacked. Like, so, um, but I think times have changed and, and we're a little bit more open. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, that having that subjective side and that gut feel, I think, is really what helps you to become a really good coach as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and on the reporting side, you mentioned you had a journal. Um, would you mind elaborating on that? What, what, were the, what were your main focus points that was really effective in your rehabilitation? Like what would you, uh, what so would you I, reflect on? Yeah. I, I, managed, I, I took notes on my pain and, and to be honest, so it was my own version of the Borg scale, which I wasn't aware of at the time. Um, so I just had a 1 to 10 pain scale that I made up myself. Um, certainly not validated like, like the, uh, the Borg RPE scale is, but um, um, I did that. I, I obviously tracked all of my training and movement, so what exercises I was doing, um, the loads I was doing, sets, reps, timing, um, and, then I'd, and then I'd document how I felt. How did I sleep that night? How did I wake up in the morning? Did I have pain through the night? Um, and I just did that ongoing. Um, I, I didn't, to be honest, focus a lot on nutrition because I just wasn't really aware of it at the time. Um, and, but it was all about training and you know, rest periods. And, um, and as I said, I could go back where I had nights where I'd wake up in the middle of the night, have really bad leg pain, um, struggle the next day or, or be you know, prohibited. It would be inhibiting me the next day, I should say. Mm. And over time, I could keep going back to my notes and looking at it going, okay, there's a bit of a common trend. So the first one I saw was those incremental jumps. And okay, well, I, I, I feel like, you know, when you've got pain, you tend to go really easy and light on exercises and you just, and then when you don't have pain, you forget very, very quickly and you go, you think you can go back to where you were. Yeah. So I learned that really quickly just because I had a reference point and a, and a journal to be able to go back to. So it was, it was pretty simple to be quite honest. It was looking at mood looking at a pain scale and tracking my training loads. Yeah. Yeah, simple but also like no not not many 18-year-olds would would uh would be doing that when they're rehabbing themselves. Like did you uh how did that come about? Was that through a surgeon or a physio recommending to note things down and see what works and what doesn't or did it just come intuitively? It was to be honest it was intuitive. I think when I did that VicFit course and started to understand, you know, a tiny little bit about exercise prescription um, I was getting a little bit of knowledge, so that gave me some impetus to start to apply that. And then I thought, okay, well, um, why is it that I'm doing training sessions and I'm sore, and then other days I go and I'm not sore? So it was really trial and error for me. And um, you know, I, I I was really driven by I wanted to go back and prove that I could play football again. That was that was actually the number one thing. And to be quite to be quite honest, I never did, and I didn't because I got to a point where I was so fit and strong and healthy that I actually didn't want to risk it. Yeah, yeah, um, makes sense. But through that period where I was getting myself to that stage, that was the motivation. I wanted to prove everyone wrong that said I couldn't do it. Yeah. And 
I also wanted to, you know, to, my, to myself prove that my life wasn't over like I was told. And you do think your life's over as an 18, 19-year-old when you're young and fit and strong that when you're told you're never going to be active and don't play competitive sport and get a desk job, um, you know, I couldn't have thought of almost anything worse that someone could have said to me at the time. And, yeah. um, and I always, I guess as a young kid, and you know, a lot of us dream to play elite sport, but I always thought it would happen because I was reasonably talented and I played in, you know, rep sides as a junior and state squads and stuff like that. And I thought it was going to happen. And when this, when this happened to me, I realized that shit, I may have, I may have really missed this opportunity because I, I actually didn't give it a crack. And I've only got myself to blame for that. So there, there was sort of multi, a lot of factors, I guess, going around and in my head. And um, so it was, it was a little bit of um, I want to prove the people who have told me you're never going to be active again. I want to prove them wrong. And then, and then it was, okay, I've missed, I may have blown my opportunity. I want to get back and I want to play footy again. I want to have a crack. Um, so that, they were the two driving forces. And to be really honest, it was just I just wanted to do whatever I could yeah. To, to achieve that, to be really frank. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that rehabilitation wasn't a, a common career, potentially not even a career at all at that stage. Um, once you'd, you'd um, got back on your feet and, you, and, and your mates are starting to notice, you know, shit, how strong you are and, and you're starting to see this stuff is, is pretty powerful. How did, when you, and you've got your, you did your diploma. When did you make that jump to like, okay, now I want to start focusing on performance and, and shift into a coach and focus on, on um, sharing this knowledge with, with athletes? Yeah, it was actually a fair while. I did a lot of personal training and, um, and then I moved overseas. I lived in London for three years and I did a lot of training over there. Um, and it was actually right at the end of my time in London, I thought I've, I've got to come back to Australia and I need to, um, if I want a career in this industry, I need, to, I need to get more knowledge. And so I came back and that's when I went to university and um, so I, I spent three years PTing in, in the UK and I came back and started studying and, um, and then I got a gig. Uh, I was actually doing a corporate training job and I hated it, absolutely hated it. And um, one of the guys who worked for this company, a pharmaceutical company, um, a guy named Scott Patterson, he, was, he played in the, in the old NSL at, in Australia and he was in Socceroo squads, um, never played for the Socceroos, but he was in a lot of squads for a m- number of years. And, he was a really good guy and we were just chatting one day and, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And, and I said, well, and there's, there's, I hadn't given this any real thought to be quite honest, but I said, well, Manchester United's the biggest club in the world and soccer's the biggest sport in the world, so that's got to be my goal. Yeah. And he said, well, he said, I know some guys at Derby County and um, they were in the Premier League at the time and, and he said, I could get you, I could do an introduction if you want to. He said, I think you'd go really well. Um, they, they're, they're involved in youth development academies, et cetera, et cetera. And, to be really honest, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I'd, I'd done a lot of personal training. And as I said, I was, I was at uni at the time and as a mature age student. And um, anyway, I won't bore you the details, but I had an interview with those guys and I ended up getting the job as a part-time fitness advisor at um, a Derby, Caddy, Derby County Academy. And, um, and so Lee Broxham, who you know, played for Melbourne Victory for a number of years, um, James Meredith, who's um, played overseas and played a couple of games for the Socceroos with kids at kids that came through the Derby Academy. Um, and that was my first taste of it. And the interesting thing was when you're working with kids, um, it's not so much about performance, but it's about teaching movement. It's about teaching efficiency and really getting the foundations right and, and education. And I, I loved it. So I had been doing with 
PTing, working with physios and, and um, doing a lot of rehabilitation stuff because that was where I thought I wanted to go. And the soccer academy, I think, just really opened my eyes up, especially working with kids. I love seeing them develop and I love seeing them succeed. And, um, you know, you'd show them something or you'd help them out with something technical. And once they grasped it, you could just see, you know, a little, just a little fire light up in their eyes. And I thought, this is actually really cool. You know, like, I really love this. And I spent a lot of time during that period because I wasn't getting paid a lot of money. And I used to get into the, the old VIS. And for some of the people listening, they'd remember it was on, um, Kavanagh Street in South Melbourne back in the day and you know I could I couldn't get in because I wasn't a coach but I used to basically like a uh, stalker I'd just watch how they trained in the windows and I'd go down there a couple of times a week and I'd just watch the VIS guys and girls train and just try and observe and pick things up and then you know if there's something I thought was really interesting I'd, I'd go to the park or and maybe try it myself and then just try and think how can I apply this in the setting that I'm in with soccer and um so that, that yeah that experience with the with the Derby Academy was just awesome and I got to work with some really awesome coaches and some fantastic uh ex professional soccer players um and that was when I really thought okay this this could be something for me and then that led to a job working in the NPL um which is for those in in the AFL or VFL it's the VFL equivalent of soccer in Australia and it was when the old National Soccer League um, had disbanded and the A-League hadn't yet formed. Mm-hmm. And I got a gig working with a guy named Joe Mullen, who an ex-National League soccer player and soccer-roo, um, brilliant guy and fantastic coach, working with a club called Green Gully. And, um, and so it was quite interesting that I sort of was trying to cut my teeth and it was a real opportunity to run my own program. And uh, all of a sudden what I, what I didn't realise, because I really didn't know soccer in Australia that well, and... Um, was it because the National League had disbanded and the A-League hadn't started? We, we had this State League team and, you know, I think we had four or five international players playing in that team and players like, uh, you know, Rodrigo Vargas, who's won multiple championships in Melbourne Victory and um, guys like Dragi Nostiewski who's played for Australia. And it's, so it was just amazing. I was like in this really fortunate position, sc- scary to be quite honest, um, because of the calibre of these guys. But, uh, again, the opportunity to run your own program and then where I was really fortunate because I had worked with physios with, with back injuries and stuff, you go into an NSL program, or sorry, uh, an NPL program and um, you're, you're the physio, you're the doctor, you're the conditioning guy, you're the rehab guy, you're, you're the psychologist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was awesome to be able to learn all those skills but also, you know, apply some of the skills I'd learned through rehab by reaching out to physios that I'd develop relationships with and be able to send players to them. Um, to, to learn, you know, I learned taping techniques and physio to say, look, I know you haven't got a physio on game day, but I'll teach you how to tape. And I just learned so many skills from some great people and great practitioners, but also learned to then manage a team. So I, I just had this really fortunate sort of stepping stone and um, working with such good calibre of players made my life actually really easy um, because like, I was just so talented for that level. But, you know, I introduced stuff like ice baths to them back in uh, 1994 um, and was doing a bit of research on that stuff and trying to work out what worked and what didn't. And I had, you know, Macedonian and Croatian players yelling at me and there's no way no one were jumping in bloody ice baths, Cam. And I compromised and said, well, look, if you get in, you can have your ice bath and I'll be there timing them while they were smoking cigarettes. So uh, we had some really fun times and, and, and it sounds funny, but through that you learn to manage 
And so, yeah, you know, yeah, go back to those. That's the art side coming through. Yeah, that's the art side coming through. Like I need to get an outcome and I want to yeah. achieve something and, and, and then they want to as well. So, okay, how do we make it happen and how do we, how do we have that conversation for us both to get the outcome we want and um, because everything in life is about compromise. So, mm. so it was, that was a really, really interesting journey for me working in soccer and, um, to be honest, some of, the, some of the happiest moments of my life and from a coaching perspective and um, obviously winning always makes life a lot easier and we won a few championships and had some great times. But relationship-wise, um, I'm really, really close with that group of soccer players from like 94, 95, 96. Um, uh, sorry, sorry, 95. And that, that was the impetus for me getting into AFL football. Right, yeah. And for, for the SNCs listening in, how important is it to get coaching experience like you mentioned doing your degree and you realized how important that was but you're also at the time had been personal trained for three years you know worked in an academy so focusing on development of the fundamental movement patterns uh rehabilitation experience liaising with physios so there was a fair bit of experience you had before even running your first program how important was that those chapters and then how important is it to to run a program at state league or or uh, for talent pathway programs yeah, I, I think the, the opportunity to run your own program just can't be undersold, um, and especially if it's at a lower level. I mean, at a state level, it's there's a little bit more um, responsibility because you know, there, there's a little bit more at stake. If it's if it's sort of a, even a lower level, a div three four, you'll learn a lot. You'll just learn a lot, and if you're really passionate, um, I don't think anyone who's passionate and wants to take on that role doesn't want to be successful. So if you're the, if you're the guy or girl who wants to drive a winning culture, you know, you'll do whatever it takes. And um, having the responsibility to, to run a program, just it's really different. I'll give you an example. So when I was an assistant, you know, say strength coach in the AFL, your relationship with the coaches is really, really different because you're not the guy that everything falls on your head as the senior conditioning guy or the head of high performance or whatever. So not having that pressure um, allows you to have just different relationships. And that's, that's the reality. You have very different relationships. You have different conversations with coaches, management, et cetera. So when you're in the head job, you know, the, the, the top job, so to speak, and your head's on the chopping block, um, there's, a lot, there's just a lot more that comes with it that no amount of training can, can really prepare you for. And conversations are different. Relationships are different. And, and so that, that experience running your own program and everything falling on your shoulders even though it's a lower level, it's the same similar responsibility. And if you, if you take it seriously, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, planning training for me, soccer absolutely is foreign to me. And it kind of still is. And I've worked in soccer for a, like a long, long time, but it's still very foreign to me. It's not, you know, it's not natural like AFL, for example. So for me to sit with coaches and plan training sessions was a real challenge. And, and I had to really concentrate, not to be really on my game because um, – I, I felt like I couldn't bring a lot to the table from a conditioning point of view because I just, you know, when you're trying to develop skills-based training and do, a, do small-sided games um, to get a certain physiological outcome or training outcome, um, back then, we, you know, we weren't using GPS and things like that. So, again, I went back to how I trained myself, take lots of notes, you know, keep a journal, keep a diary, review things, constantly go back and review things and, just did, I wasn't doing RP scales or deltas and things like that, but I'd go into the rooms and, or I'd call players and, I'd, hey, feeling today, Jack? 
Mm. after a training session and just get a sense of across the group, are they all feeling good? Are they sore? Are they tired? Um, and so I, I really can't undersell the, the value of um, running your own program, no, no matter what the level is. And, and obviously, if you start at a lower level, you will work your way up and, there's, and that's great because you'll, you'll learn different things along the way. But I got interviewed by um, Loris Bertolacci, who um, I know you've had on this podcast. And when Loris interviewed me, um, he asked me a lot about, you know, rehab, strength training, all, all the standard stuff. And then he asked about, you know, situational things. So what are you going to do on the training track if this happens? Yeah. And I was able to give him real-world examples and say, well, actually, you know, working with this soccer club, this has actually happened to me. This is how we played it out, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't think... To be really honest, I was the best candidate for the job when I got hired by Loris by, by a long while. Um, but I think the fact that I'd run my own program and that I'd had that responsibility on my shoulder gave him some level of confidence that, okay, if, if he's not around um, or if he's sick or whatever, he's pulled away fr- from the training program or you know, whether it's in the gym or on the track and we're doing plyometrics or whatever, that I could make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's really important. And, and you know, the one we, you, you learn by making mistakes and you want to encourage people to make mistakes. But certainly the people I've had that, that have worked with me that have, you know, been younger and come up through the ranks and I've, I've wanted them to make mistakes, but I try and get them to make mistakes on paper, so to speak, because yeah. you can't go on the training track with an elite athlete who's going to compete in two days' time and, and, and fuck it up. So um, I think that running your own program is just invaluable and it teaches you that. It really teaches you risk-reward and don't let your ego get in the way. Um, don't get pressured by a coach who wants you to push that player a little bit more when intuitively you know he's probably or he or she is right on the edge yeah. or they've just yeah. been dosed enough. They don't need any more to perform. So, yeah, I, I, can't, under, I can't undervalue um, or undersell with the importance of that, I think, for, for young people coming through. Um, and even if you've had a couple of years in elite sport, and, and you want him, you feel like it's a step back, it's not a step back. You'll just learn so much by doing it and then you'll be surprised because it'll propel you forward if you've got the right attitude. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like through your, your progression, you know, still in the early stage of your career at this point, but your systems of stand-up and transfer through the different chapters, whether it was you personally to then overseas, to then, you know, work, learning a new sport, running conditioning in that, to then now, you know, in an interview setting for your first job in elite sport, um, by you know having that reporting system and reflecting and um, and working hard was when you when you put your like focus on towards high performance sport and you mentioned Man United um, was was your goal. Did you envision it being rehabilitation at the time and helping those that had chronic injuries like yourself, or was it more? You, were, you just knew that you wanted to be involved in that environment and you were just going to let, let the rest take care of itself. Uh, yeah, I didn't have a plan, um, to be really honest, yep. um, which you can probably tell by my journey. Um, I just, it, 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 it stems right back to the very start that when I started learning about movement and exercise as a therapy um, yep. and how that can help people, that's what gave me the most amount of joy. So, um, if I could continue to do that, and to, to be honest, probably somewhere along the way, I, I just got excited by maybe, you know, climbing my way up through my career and, and lost a little bit of sight of, um, 
I not lost sight. I just didn't have a definitive plan, if that makes sense. Um, I'd been really fortunate that the environments that I'd been in, uh, whether it was rehab settings, whether it was the soccer clubs, um, the development academies, I just I was really fortunate to work with really good people and and open minded people. So. To be really honest, I never had a hard fixed plan and I probably just, uh, I worked with Loris and unfortunately, I, you know, I experienced Loris um, getting getting ejected from Geelong and it was a really challenging time because I'd actually knocked on the door a couple, couple of years in a row to try and work with Loris and, um, and only had a very short period of time with him, unfortunately, and that probably affected me psychologically more than anything and um, gave me a bit of a negative slant on... Um, the world of professional sport yeah. and yeah. that's probably a bit unfair to the industry as a whole but what I'd experienced and what what Loris went through and um what I what I saw it just it didn't equate to me he's this really passionate guy really knowledgeable guy the players absolutely love him so he's got buy-in um he's got an unbelievable gut feel um you know so he's really got that art side to coaching and and then he's gone that's you know and I was like wow yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, and I think that's when I, when I realised, okay, this is more than just being good at your job. And I remember speaking to Andrew Russell, um, we, were at a, we were at a conference once and, and Jack said something to me that, um, and I won't mention the names, but he said, you know, one of the people that he'd worked with and mentored him had taught him the game and one had taught him how to play the game. And what he was saying was that one had taught him the real, the real art and the skills of being a strength and conditioning coach and the other one had mentored him and taught him how to deal with the politics because there's a lot of politics in sport. And I guess I just wasn't ready for that, to be really honest with you. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really have that, I want to be at Manchester United, I want to be in a rehab role or a conditioning role or um, high-performance manager. I just, it was just egotistical, to be honest. It was like, well, they're the best. Yeah, I just yeah. want to aim for the best, and you know what? If I don't get there, at least I've given it a crack, and I'll, I'll probably have a hell of a journey along the way, and I can't complain. And that, that was probably my thinking at the time, to be honest. Yeah, which is so interesting. Like I've had so many leaders in the field uh, on this podcast in, in all different walks of life, and it's pretty consistent across the board that no one had this sort of grand ten-year plan that they were going to, you know, work it all out. But they just worked hard and had it and backed themselves in to work it out. And then, you know, kept kept climbing the ladder and taking on new challenges. So yeah, for, for developing S and Cs, there's something in that for sure that you know to take on new challenges and getting out of your comfort zone and and, and obviously putting in the work and and like you said before, like if it's state league level or if it's development div three, you've still got to go above and beyond because you're gonna you're gonna get better at what at your craft by doing so. Yeah, absolutely. You know. You talk to anyone who's who's had a career in the industry, and there's, there's a really common theme, and they're super passionate. Mm. And you don't you don't have a career in this field um, over any length of time unless you're really passionate. And um, if you're in it for the money, you're in the wrong career. Like you're in the wrong industry in terms of S and C. Um, if that's your starting point, um, there's no doubt various sports and and so on. There's so much to learn. But you know, you look at the Olympic sports and how elite that is. You know, like. You know, you've got one opportunity every four years. Mm. You know, and I used to talk to the AFL boys a lot around, yes, you're elite, but that, that for me, that's just another level and it's another level of thinking. It's another level of application, um, you know, to, to have four years of training preparation and then get to the Olympics and, 
I know you get the flu, which yeah. is out of your control, yeah. like far out. You know, there's your one opportunity. And, you know, everyone has a bad day and it could be that day. Mm. And there's a lot that you can't control. And there's a lot that you can. Great thing about team sport is you've got, you know, a lot of the time you've got next week. Yeah. And a lot of the time you've got other teammates that can maybe pick up the slack when, when you're, you know, when you're down. So I, I love, I love uh, Olympic athletes. And, and I think one of the things I used to say to a lot of the young guys who would work with me or I'd hire in S&C roles is go, go, to the, go to the local athletics track, find your local athletics track and just watch training for a couple of nights and observe and find the oldest coach on the track. And go and introduce yourself and ask if you can volunteer and help and, and, and just, you know, even if it's just observing, you know, and listen to what they're saying, watch what they're doing. And I used to get all these strange looks year in, year out with, you know, young S&C coaches like, well, I'm going to go and talk to the oldest guy on the athletics track. And I'm like, well, just think about it. Um, one, just the knowledge that those people have from so many years. Two, and I, I heard Bowden um, Baba talking on one of your podcasts recently and, and you know, He's an exceptional coach, um, but he talked about, you know, you work for so many years for no money. And so these guys are still in it at 50, 60, 70 years of age. They've done it for not much money, if, if they've been paid at all. Um, so they're super passionate. And you'll often find they've trained really elite track and field athletes, you know, national level, potentially international level athletes. And they're not... They're not in the AFL or the rugby and, and in, the, in the limelight and, you know, have Instagram pages and Facebook pages and Twitter pages. They're just, they're just doing it for sheer passion. They love it. And if you can develop a relationship with those people and be good to them and learn, um, what an opportunity. Like, what an, what an opportunity. And the knowledge that you'll get from that is just you, you can't read it in a textbook and um, it's so hard to develop that um, yourself. Um, trying to learn yourself, go and learn it off someone else who's been doing it for 50 years. You know, that's that's experience and that's invaluable, absolutely invaluable. Yeah, no, thanks so much for sharing that, mate. That's, um, that's a great point and, and definitely one I've noted down and hopefully all the coaches tuned in have as well. Um, yeah, get down to the local arts track for sure. And I, actually, Bowden, someone I've been, but lockdown's been trickier. It's reminded me of, I've wrote down his name as well because I was trying to tee up some work um to shadow him and do exactly that so you've you put that at the front of my mind oh <laughs> uh, well, you yeah he's, he's a very very kind kind man and he's um he's exceptional at what he does so you'll you'll love working with him yeah and um in terms of the the bad tasting mouth with, with your first experience at geelong and and uh it sounds like loris was like someone you were looking up to and, and a mentor and then you got to work with him after you know chipping away at him for a couple of years and you get the role and then um Due to circumstances, it doesn't work out, and and Loris has left the club. How important was that in your career, and and for S and C's, young S and C's, how important is it to have Plan B because the beast of elite sport? Yeah, I, th- I think having a Plan B is really important. I, I know I didn't, and and I thought that um, I was just going to continue to evolve, and this would be my life forever. Um, I I was pretty naive, to be really, really, really honest. Um, I remember. Back back in like the mid two thousands, all the, a lot of the conditioning coaches, or pretty much all the conditioning coaches in AFL clubs, got together and we were trying to form an association. We were the only, oh. I guess, group in the AFL that didn't have an official association. So there, you know there was the Docs Association, the Players Association, coaches, etc. And and uh, Andrew Demetri at the time, he he didn't really like us, and um, I think he used to call us the Fizzettas. And and yeah. um, 
and we got in Neil Danaher because I, I think Neil had just finished up coaching and and was um, working with the uh, the coaches association and um, or maybe it was the players association. I can't I can't recall, but we, we got Neil in to have a chat to us about how do we go about doing this? You know, how can we formalise it? Uh, what are the roadblocks, et cetera, et cetera? And I'll never forget. He said to us, um, you, "You've got to have a plan B, boys, because at the end of the day, you're all fucked." Yeah, and and. It was pretty confronting because, and, and but it is the reality, and, and more so, you know, as an athlete. But at, at the end of the day, it's, it all comes to an end one day. You know, whether it's at a club, it's, it's someday you're going to exit the building. You're hopefully on good terms, but more often than not, when you look through the history and let's just look at AFL, there's just not a lot of people that survive 10, 15 years. There's just not. And, um, and the toll it takes on people and their families if they do is significant. So, it was pretty good advice. It was pretty directed and poignant. But um, I think looking outside the square and how can I apply my skills and, and so on is really important. And that might be just starting to dabble in some consulting or, you know, doing something like yourself, which is brilliant, you know, podcasts that are really specific and benefiting an industry. Um, there's a lot, there's so much opportunity now that I think it's really important to just look outside the square. Um, even for young, young kids coming through when they finish uni, especially in Australia, and I imagine it's the same in places like America where NFL is so big or England where soccer is so big, is to, to look outside, like um, look at other sports. Like what about water polo? What a great challenge that would be. It's an international sport. It's huge in Europe. Um, netball, rugby, you know, rugby sevens. Um, there's so many sports that you, you can apply your knowledge and learn and grow and develop where I, I speak to a lot, of, a lot of people coming out of, union what do you want to do and i want to be an afl strength and conditioning coach Mm. and that's okay there's nothing like it's a great career but there's a limited number of jobs um you know it's tough to get into as you know and and it's tough to stay in it as neil told us so um what else are you doing to develop your skills and your skill set and your knowledge um for some it might be lecturing and doing some part-time lecturing or going into academia um absolutely it's so important to to look at that and um i had a young guy anthony rondinelli who worked with me at port adelaide and we um sat down a few months into his his um start to his tenure at port and said okay look i I like all my staff to have a professional development plan and um i said to rondo go and have a think about it mate and come back and he um he came back and he said look to be honest i'm i'm just going away every night i'm so so full of knowledge and I'm learning every day on, on the job and I don't know whether I've got the capacity to, to do more study. And we had, a, we had a couple of chats about this and, and the general gist of the conversation from my side was, well, mate, if you don't come back and give me a plan and it's something that's really going to be beneficial to you and your career, um, at the end of the season, which is six months away and we do our reviews, you probably won't be here next year. And I guess what I was trying to say to him is that you know, one, don't, don't think your undergrad degree is the be-all and end-all. It's just it's the base. It's a really good foundation. Um, but there's still so much to learn. And we want you to learn and grow and develop and for yourself and also for our football club. And he ended up doing uh, the IOC nutrition course and I put him on as the first full-time ever, you know, sports dietitian, nutritionist at a football club in the AFL. Um, and he's had a pretty good career, and I'm, and I'm I'm so happy for him. You know, he's worked in, with international tennis, and he's he's in rugby at the moment. And um, but the point, you know, it was really interesting what he thought was possible from a capacity perspective, and where he thought his learning was versus where just through experience I knew that it, it, it could go. 
um, it, it's really important to set, you know, your in, your employees and your colleagues, your younger ones who are learning, to set them up for success for the future and to open up their eyes to other opportunities. And whilst you want them operating at a really high level for the job that they're doing with you, yet I think you have a responsibility to um, absolutely kind of guide them but leave them in a better place and open their eyes up to other opportunities and experiences and develop a, a you know, a really big tool bag so that if AFL, and you know, if AFL falls over and um, you can apply those skills elsewhere, you know, there are other, other opportunities you can go into and that absolutely was the case with Rondo. You know, AFL kind of started to stumble a little bit and he got into tennis and now he's in rugby and, and what a great skill set. He's got strength and conditioning as a background. He's got nutrition. He's really strong in that. Um, what, an, what an awesome skill set. And, um, oh, you know, he probably wouldn't feel as, feel as strongly or passionately maybe as I do about it because I know that he didn't want to do it and probably felt like we were pushing him to do something um, at one stage. But I think it's held him in really good stead with his career. So, yeah, I think having a plan B is absolutely essential. Yeah, 100%, mate. And, yeah, he was fortunate enough to have someone like yourself that actually was thinking of him because so often you can um, just go aimlessly, like you said, and, you, and you, everyone's busy focusing on their role and they're at their capacity. But um, to almost treat, treat each other, like you said, colleagues like athletes, that there should be a plan to get better and, and improve. Um, and just by simply probably someone raising it and building that awareness, you're able to then put some energy into it. Um, which which is great, and yeah, and you almost gave him a bit of your own version of the Neil Danaher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of, but um, right. it's an interesting one, you know, Jack. Like back, you know, back in the in the mid nineties and early two thousands, you know, conditioning departments weren't massive, and we didn't have, you know, GPS came in in sort of the mid two thousands. I mean, we had one hertz GPS units in I think two thousand and five, and um, and so. Where I was really fortunate was when I when I had the opportunity to work with people or get some experience. It's really interesting how much time they had to give, how much knowledge they wanted to share, and I'm forever grateful for that. And it's something that you know I always, I always it was never lost on me. And and I think now in high performance because you know most footy departments have eight or ten staff and there's data going around left, right, and centre and. Um, so many stakeholders with, you know, with coaching staff and, you know, um, board members and blah, 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 you've got to report to. I, I feel like sometimes that's just a little bit lost, that just that passing down of knowledge, that little bit of care, that, that relationship stuff. Um, it was never lost on me and I've, I've really appreciated it. And, and as I said earlier, I've just been so fortunate to um, rub shoulders and, 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 be, and work with some really awesome people, whether it be soccer, whether it be physios, um, you know, in a rehab setting. Um, or, or in the AFL, um, and you know, as as you get older, I think you value that more. And one of the things I love about my current business with Body Fit Training is that you know we've got thirty five thousand members, and to be able to just see them get enjoyment out of our programs and what we deliver to them um, is something that one I never thought I'd be able to do, and two, funnily enough, I could never do that in sport. Because you know you have a squad of twenty or forty-five or whatever it is, and um, to be able to now give to thirty-five thousand people, and we have a thousand trainers in our network, and to be able to help educate them and pass on some knowledge, and and absolutely for me to continue to learn off those people, is just one of the great things I think about our industry is that the the journey just never ends. You know, you're always yeah. learning, um, and every setting is just slightly uniquely different. 
but some of the things are constants. And, and I think that passing down of knowledge and that relationship side of things with your staff and that care factor to make them better is, is something that, I, to be honest, I'm out of the strength and conditioning sort of world now with, with my business, but that was really strong back in the, you know, the mid-90s and the, and, the, and the 2000s. It was really, really strong. Um, and something I really appreciated as a young guy coming through. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, that if, you, if we're passionate about it, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to want to pass that information on. If someone's impacted you, you want to you do the same back. And it's great that our industry does do that, both in the private sector as well as uh, in, in sport. Hey guys, Paul Curtis here from the Western Jets Football Club. And um, this year I was fortunate enough to get help from uh, Prepare Like a Pro, uh, helping me prepare. Uh, for the draft combine. Um, my normal week would consist of, or seeing as uh, I was trying to improve my 2K, would consist of um, endurance days. Um, I'd have a feel good day where uh, I try and work on my running technique and just feel comfortable in running. Um, have my speed days. Um, have some injury prevention exercises, um, lower body sessions and upper body sessions. Um, what I enjoyed most about the program um, was how Jack was quite invested in me, um, always checking up on me, giving me feedback. Um, we looked at my diet, um, so the stuff off the field, so hydration, sleep, uh, motivation levels, and all that. So, yeah, highly recommend, and yeah, I um, enjoyed the uh, journey. Going back to your career, um, what were some of your biggest challenges that you found working in elite sports? So you've gone from Geelong to, to Doggies at this stage. Uh, was at Doggies, uh, I understand, that was when you ran your first program at Western Bulldogs? Yeah, I, I, got a, I obviously got a bit of a taste of Geelong when Loris left and I ran the program there for the remainder of the year, but it, you know, it was absolutely Loris's program, so I was really just the caretaker. Yeah, um, yeah the Doggies was, and... I really wanted that opportunity because um, as Loris had done the work with the boys at Geelong, they were, they were really developed. They were under an amazing program for a number of years with him and the opportunity at the Bulldogs was a, was a really strong team that was performing pretty well, but they were really, they were really underdeveloped physically. Um, and so that, that was just a great challenge to go into a side that was still young um, but when I compared, for example, their strength and power data to Geelong, it was like they were just miles off. But when I compared running data, it was pretty much the same. And so, you know, when, when the big games happen and when AFL finals happen, it becomes a bit more combative and a bit more, um, a lot more, um, you know, higher intensity sprint efforts and accelerations, et cetera, the Bulldogs were, were going to fall apart. And so, and that's what the club had seen. So that was an awesome opportunity and, and, um, I had a really good assist, Luke Meehan, um, who came over from Geelong and worked with me. He's at Richmond now and he was awesome and it was his sort of first full-time gig working in the gym and running rehab and he did an awesome job and was an awesome support for me. And I think just, um, again, it was really bizarre. You know, it was two guys. You know, our, our, that was our conditioning department, two guys. Yeah, I was really yeah. fortunate we, we had a partnership with Vic Uni and um, so we got access to some awesome academics in, you know, Biomech and Skillac and, and physiology, people like Kevin Ball and Claire McMahon and Rob Augie, and we're able to leverage off those guys. And, I mean, the learning I, I got in probably 2007 and eight at the Bulldogs was probably the, probably the most I've ever learned in, a, in a, you know, a, probably a two-year period, both from a 
I guess, uh, from a tactician, not a tactician, from a um, from a coaching perspective and being um, an S&C coach, but also academically, because I was just so fortunate to have all these really smart um, and great people at Vic Uni at our disposal to help us with analysing data, looking at things a little bit differently, um, do all of that testing for us and give us a different slant on how they're looking at things. And so, yeah, that, that, that was a really awesome opportunity. And one of the things I learned and, and for those that were involved in the AFL that period of time, the AFL went through this massive push to sports science mm-hmm. and coaches were fascinated with it. We want, we want data and we want GPS numbers. And, and as I said, well, you know, we were using unhertz GPS. And in fact, Rob Augie and I did a study on, on the GP sports um, one hertz units and found that they were, you know, up to 100% inaccurate um, live versus post hoc. So, um, so uh, GP sports weren't that happy with us at the time, but um, it was really interesting because the coaches wanted answers and they wanted answers straight away because we're making this big investment in technology, but we actually didn't really know what the data meant at the time and, and more importantly, how to apply it. So yeah. that was a huge learning curve. And, and it, I mean, the guys at Vic Uni were phenomenal and, um, in helping us and there's no way known I could have done that on my own. And, um, and so that, that was an awesome grounding of, okay, one, outsource and get experts to come in and help you. You can't do everything yourself. So know what you know, but also really know what you don't know and get, get experts in and get professionals in to help you because um, that's really important. So being able to do that was, was fantastic for us. Um, you know, giving Luke Mean an opportunity who, who, was, who was young and, and largely inexperienced, but I, I, I just knew that he, he had something in him. Um, I probably took a little bit of a punt putting him in full time and putting him full time into rehabilitation. But he, he was a guy that, you know, similar to what we we're saying about running your own program and putting the hard yards in and learning. You know, Luke, when I was at Geelong, he was part time, but he would come in on his days off and he would want to do extra and he'd be there on game days and he'd be helping download GPS units all in his own time and all for free. And I thought, well, you know what, let's give this guy an opportunity because. You can't replace hard work. And if he's passionate, he's got hard work, I want to give him as much of an opportunity as I can. So, again, the, I guess the lessons were um, understand where my strengths and weaknesses were and where my weaknesses were, bring in other people who were really strong, you know, way better than me at it. And don't be afraid as a, someone running a department to get people in who are better than you, you know, because empowering other people to do the job is really powerful and, and they'll run with it, you know, so get out of your way a little bit and get out of other people's way was something I learned. And, um, and the, the other thing I learned, you know, which I saw through Loris was really, really developing relationships, strong relationships with players and, and making them believe. And to be honest, it took some time. And in 2008, it really, really clicked and it really worked. And we went through a really tough preseason. Um, because we didn't have a training facility, we were rebuilding um, Witten Oval and we had guys doing weight sessions at 9.30 at night um, oh, wow. during pre-season and we were starting running sessions the next morning at 6 in the morning because, um, you know, the, the coaches had offices in one, one area of Footscray and we had part-time offices at Vic Uni and it, it was a really, really big challenge for the club and the players at the time and um, one of the things I learned was that, you know, don't make a big deal of it. It is what it is. Mm. It's not going to stop us. It's just a challenge and we'll overcome it. And if we, if we all have that mindset and we really focus on that through the preseason and, um, you know, we went through the season, I think, to around 15 or 16 and I think we, we hadn't lost a game. And 
ended up playing finals and just losing a prelim final to Geelong um, that year and off the back of a preseason that most people wouldn't read about. And um, so, yeah, you know, out of adversity, you know, comes opportunity. I think that was another lesson that we learned and that, you know, it's everything, everything in life is, is dependent on the lens that you're looking through and you can choose to look at the opportunity or you can complain and you can make excuses. And um, certainly the playing group and the coaching group that year and the club in general just said, no, this is an opportunity for us and it's going to galvanise the group and it's going to make us stronger. And um, I actually remember players running in at three-quarter time in the prelim final and they were talking about the preseason and everything they'd gone through and that they were going to run this game out. They were on top, that they felt Geelong were tired. So it was really interesting that, you know, right in the heat of battle, three-quarter time, MCG, prelim final, um, I remember Daniel G and Syracuse are running in talking to the players about it. And I was like, wow. This, this, this is, yeah, it's just a really interesting psyche. And, and so it was, you know, choose the lens that you want to look through and, and make it a positive one because there is always opportunity. And, um, you know, glasses half full is way, way better than being glasses half empty. Yeah. Was that something that you planted? Like you talked about how Andrew Russell talked about, you know, you can be taught to, you know, the art of coaching and, and that game, but then there's also playing the game and being able to influence people through through politics and the, and the culture of the club was like, as a coach, were you, was that intentional to try and get leaders like De- Daniel G and Tukuza to mention those things at three quarter time or that just sort of happened and you took back and you, and you looked at that like, Oh wow, that's a, that, that's awesome. That almost surprised you when it happened. The players did it. Uh, definitely not intentional. And, and I'm not one for trying to fabricate things like that. I just don't think it works. Um, but there's, there, you know, there absolutely would have been times during, the lead up to the finals and and the finals itself, we were really we were, it was a really bizarre season. So to give you a bit of a backdrop, I think after round sixteen, um, we didn't win a game for the rest of the season, and it was the top four. I, th- I think was Geelong, Hawthorne, St Kilda, and Bulldogs, and we were all that far ahead from the rest of the competition that we couldn't. The top four couldn't change, yeah. and so win loss was really irrelevant for the next seven weeks. So we I sat down with Rodney and the coaching group and. We decided that, okay, potentially here's a really awesome opportunity to um, get a little bit of extra work into the guys and almost do another training block because it didn't matter whether we won or lost. And clearly we were training harder because we didn't win a game for the next six or seven weeks. So I think that also played psychologically into the minds of the players because every week we did a presentation about it and we talked about it. Mm. And... um, they knew we were playing finals and that's where their mindset was. So we, we didn't have to. Like Athletes know when you do the work, you don't, you don't become successful and you don't get to play in a prelim final at MCG unless, as an athlete unless you put hard yards in and you've made some sacrifices and they, they knew that. I, we don't have to fabricate it. We don't have to tell them. They, they know that. So I think probably through that seven-week block, there was a few reminders of where we'd come from as a group and what yep. the, you know, the adversity and the things that we'd overcome and the challenges that we'd overcome. Um, so no doubt that was fresh in their minds, but, but certainly that was driven by the players. That was internal. It obviously meant something to them and they believed in it. Yep, yep. And then, the next, you know, the next role was at Port Adelaide, uh, of interstate role for, for S&Cs with, with young families or, or, or a partner. How challenging is it to make those decisions uh, when the home moves? Yeah, it's, yeah it, it, it is challenging. Um, I just had my wife and I just had our first son, so uh, he was 
less than a year old when, when I went to Adelaide. Um, my second son was born over there, which is unfortunate for him. He's an Adelaide boy. But um, um, I think, again, it, it goes back to me not really having a plan and thinking that it's all just going to work out. Um, I didn't really think about it too much. Um, I thought potentially we'd live in Adelaide for a few years and come home and go to another club. And, um, and I actually got home and I got, off, I got offered, not offered a job, I got headhunted to, to apply for a job for the um, Philadelphia 76ers. And um, I remember going through that process. And then one day I looked at, I was talking to my wife about, geez, you know, it's a possibility we may move. And I remember looking at their roster and their travel schedule. And I just went, no, I can't do it anymore. Not, not, I can't put my wife through it. I can't put my kids through it. And it, it is a big challenge. And I think with sport, um, it's also a great opportunity. I had, I had an amazing time in Adelaide and, you know, my family had an amazing time. We, we built some fantastic friendships and relationships with people. But when, when you're in S&C, you're, you're all in. You know, you, you, can't, you're not half, you can't be half pregnant. And, and so my phone never stopped ringing, whether it was players calling at night. Nearly every night I'd have a phone call with the head doctor. I'd speak to the, the head coach every night. Um, we'd have, a, you know, just a, a quick, you know, wrap-up of the day what's what's evolved since everyone's left the club because there's always players have seen doctors and gone to appointments i'd have a chat with that chat with the footy manager um and so i guess i was fortunate because my kids were really really young but over the years that never changes and as your kids get older you know and family needs change it's it's something that people need to consider and um certainly at the end of my time when, when i got given the flick from port i spent two weeks camping with with my family and I just remember saying to my wife, wow, I just, I, I just didn't realise what I was missing out on. And, you know, just because I just saw so much development in two weeks in my kids, I was like, far out. Like, is this what happens every, every week kind of thing? Um, having said that, um, it's an awesome career and it's a fantastic environment to be involved with. You know, my wife went over there. We're completely new to Adelaide. We don't really know anyone at all. Um, and all of a sudden there's an, inst- an instant family and they embrace you and, um it's very rare that if, you know, if I had gone over there with KPMG, that wouldn't have happened and my wife wouldn't have integrated as quickly and, and so on. So, you know, footy, footy clubs and elite sporting teams are really awesome environments, really awesome. You know, it's a big family. And um, so from that aspect, absolutely really, really um, fortunate and, and really appreciative, but it is certainly a challenge. And I know I speak to still speak to a lot of guys in the AFL and I, and I know it's a challenge for them. You know, their family's moving. Um, maybe you were young, you didn't have a family, but you've moved into state and got married and got kids and you're always torn between where home is. So um, that's a decision that a lot of practitioners will make along their career. For me personally, um, my wife was really good and gave up a lot of things for me and I got to a point in my strength and conditioning career that I thought probably time to give a little bit back to her. Um, I did that for one year and then I started up a few businesses and got back on the merry-go-round. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is a challenge. It's certainly a challenge. And um, I wouldn't be, to be honest, I wouldn't be thinking about it too much as a young guy or girl getting into the industry. Just, you know, forge your pathway and these things will, you know, these challenges will come when the timing is right and you, you make your own decisions and decide what's best in your life at that point in time. Yeah. 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 So no regrets. And it, like you said, the environment, that's the, the part that um, is so special about working in that uh, in that role, um, it, it's a lifestyle, and um, and and you're around so many great people, and it's the the growth that you get from it personally and professionally 
is huge. And it, for, for, for the young guys, obviously that's something you want to aspire to it, then go for it. What about for guys that are thinking of that and they're listening into this podcast? How, it's not an easy decision to, to walk away from that level, specifically when you said a new sport is knocking on your door and you've got the opportunity to go to another country and, and take on another challenge there in, in America, which is, would have been huge. How did you know that it's your time now to focus on your, on your family and, and then we'll get into the business side of things? But was it, a, was it a gut call? Was it leaning on a few of your mentors? Did it take some time? Or like for those in that similar position, what would you re- how would you recommend managing that? Yeah, gee, that's a good question. Um, it certainly took time. And the point I made about sporting environments being really a really good environment to be in was just always drew me back. Um, so that was hard to leave. You know, the, the, the adrenaline rush, you know, the, the, you, you do everything for, for the game day and the, the, the win or the loss, you know, and, and, then, and then whether it's a win or a loss, it's back to work and you've got to go again. And, you know, that, that two hours or whatever it is on a, on a weekend or weekday or weeknight that you're competing um, is what I loved about it. And my whole week was driven by that. And so it was really hard. That was really hard to, to walk away from, to um, be away from, you know, it's really rare to be in an environment where every, everyone is absolutely pulling in the same direction. Yeah. You know, yeah. in, in a lot of corporations in the corporate world, people are pulling, have competing interests and, and, and they're pulling, getting pulled in different directions. And, and in sport, it's all about the performance and it's about the athletes. And um, I love that and being in that team environment. So that was really hard to leave. Um, I was fortunate that, you know, my early career, I, I had done rehab and I had worked with physios and I um, had worked in soccer and part-time and had relationships with people and, and, and through working and doing PT, I knew a lot of gym owners. And I had had people reach out to me over the years saying, hey, would you like to do this or would you like to do that as business ventures? And I was just focused on strength and conditioning that I never really explored those opportunities. And um, so when I left Port, that was the time for me, I thought, I really want to give my wife an opportunity to go back and chase her corporate career. And um, to do that, I need to step back. And um, so I started making phone calls and reconnecting with people, you know, in the fitness industry in terms of um, gyms, the commercial side of the fitness industry and physio mates and um, people that I studied myotherapy with. I studied myotherapy. Um, and so I just thought, you know what? I originally thought I, I wanted to start a gym. I started, I actually started a 24 hour gym. Um, and I thought this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be able to help all these people and write awesome programs. And and to be really honest, I struggled. I, I remember sitting trying to write a ladies program, just you know, 45 year old lady, mum of two, and and I, I actually couldn't write a gy- just a gym program. I, I, like it took me three hours. It was and I and it really frustrated me. And it was like I was so used to you know working in an environment where there, where everything has a goal and there's a there's a performance outcome and we have so much information to be able to inform me on how to shape that program all of a sudden i have a lady who's joined the gym and give me five minutes of her background and, and then i'm going to write a program for her and take her through it the next when she comes in on the next appointment and i literally couldn't write the program and it, and it killed me it absolutely killed me i was like maybe i've lost it maybe i maybe i'm not meant to do this anymore and um and so that that was that was an absolute challenge for me and um and that just led to me talking to more people and you know have i lost it you know or do i just need to look at things differently and um, and so, and then that's what led to body fit training. And I wanted to do something that I guess utilize my skills and knowledge as a conditioning coach, but make it for the mainstream and, and get it in the hands of as many people. And 
through my experience with having our own 24-hour gym, I had a lot of trainers come through, PTs come through, and, you know, I was really surprised at how many CVs said that they were they did strength and conditioning, they did rehabilitation, um, they did, you know, body composition training. And, and I was like, wow, these people are way better than me because um, I can only really do strength and conditioning. Like, I don't, I don't do any of this other stuff. And, and, and in reality, once I interviewed these people, it was like passionate tick, you know, got their minimum qualifications tick, but experience, haven't got experience, haven't been in the real world, um, haven't really been in front of people or coached them. Um, and so, I, again, I struggled with that. So I was like, what, what is wrong with our industry? All these people saying they can do things they can't do. And I've spent 20 years trying to build a career and, you know, stare inside the, 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 Vic, um, uh, the Victorian Institute of Sport windows and learn and work for nothing. So it, it actually really disheartened me for a while. And, um, and that's when I started coming up with a concept of body fit training and thought, well, how can I, how can I utilise my skills to provide people who are passionate with an opportunity to have a career, but also um, educate them and, and impart some of my knowledge and try and get them passionate about what I'm passionate about, which is health and fitness, getting people lifting weights and enjoying themselves and, and you know, and feeling the benefits of that. And um, that, that was a really, really hard transition for me. Like I, I genuinely really struggled. I really, really struggled. Um, and so I think the earlier conversation, you know, we were having around having a plan B, I didn't have one, and, and I think that's why I struggled. Um, so I think if you can be take Neil Danaher's advice and know that it's someday it's coming um, and start just exploring, you know, where are your skill sets and where do they lie and what are you really passionate about? And right from going back to my back injury and what I learned from my own training and getting pain-free, I was like my, my immediate thing was how many people are in this situation and how can I help them? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's what resonated with me when I got out of sport was that was that was what I saw was the opportunity was how can I help more people? And hopefully, you know, through through body fit training, whether it's our franchisees that are running successful businesses that we can support and that they're, they're having, you know, a great time in a field that they're passionate about, or whether it's our thirty-five thousand members, I feel like, you know, I'm on a different journey now and I'm able to really um we've got some great staff that work with me, by the way, do a hell of a job, but that was the opportunity for me. I didn't really know how I was going to do it, but that was certainly the opportunity. But I, I definitely struggled the first 18 months when I decided to, to really make the cut. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for sharing that and, and being so open and honest with, with the challenges of that transition stage. And um, no doubt that will help some people um, and, and also just build some awareness maybe for those that haven't gone through those challenges yet in their, in their career. Um, you mentioned the, the the passion with helping people, and, and you can tell throughout the whole um, podcast you, you, you're passionate about not only helping athletes and clients, but also coaches develop. Um, talk us through how the the creation of Body Fit Training came about, and um, you know why is it group classes? Uh, how did it become a franchise? Um, you know, take us through the the creative side of it. Yeah, well, as I said, I started a twenty four hour gym and. Um... Yeah, it felt like I couldn't write programs for the mainstream. <laughs> I really struggled, and um, and I thought, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not utilizing my skill set, and um, I, d- I really just wanted to find a way. And I, we used to at Port Adelaide, we used to do these power endurance sessions in the gym with with the players, and um, you know, they'd have heart rate monitors on, we have live heart rate and everything, and and, and I just remember that they loved it, they absolutely loved the training, and 
you're in a group, you, you, they're in their team environment, they're all working hard together and there's high fives and I thought, okay, you know, AFL is actually, you know, a really awesome way to train from a, from a training perspective. If you look at how AFL players train, they're, they're really, really awesome hybrid athletes. Mm. Um, you've got to be aerobically so good. You know, you've got to be uh, anaerobically, you've got to be good. You know, you, you've got to say so you've got to have good strength and power. You've got to be extremely durable, you know, robust. You've got to build bodies that can withstand, you know, that 360-degree nature of the sport and the bash and crash. And so I thought, you know, when I look at a week of how we train in the preseason, it's actually a really good way to train. Obviously not to that level and the intensity of those, those guys do, but um, it's just a good way to train. You know, you have your aerobic days, your conditioning days, you do your speed days on the track and things like that. And I thought, well, what if I can develop a system that's really loosely based around that, where each week we try and train a specific energy system through a program we try and target, you know, slow twitch muscle fibers, fast twitch muscle fibers, and then we try and move through as many fascial planes as we can, which we do with AFL conditioning because it's a 360-degree sport. So, you know, we don't want to overload on any joints and structures day in, day out. So um, how about do some high-intensity and low-intensity days and, um, you know, players go off and do Pilates or yoga and recovery and things like that. So I just started playing around with it in 2015 and, um I had two guys, uh, ex-players from Port Adelaide, um, Matt Thomas and Daniel Stewart, and I'd kept in contact with them um, post-footy and Daniel had just finished his career and he was looking at either going into fitness or going into the building game and Matty was just winding up his career at the Richmond Football Club and I, I remember talking to him and saying, hey, look, remember, that, remember those sessions we used to do in the gym? You know, They're like, oh, yeah, we used to love those. And I said, look, I've got this concept and I took him through the whole concept and, and just said, look, I'm thinking about starting a group training gym. And um, you guys are looking for an opportunity. You know, if you guys, I know you're fa- passionate about fitness. If, if that's what you're passionate about, how about I'll, I'll, put in, I'll put in the money and I'll get it going and um, you guys can put in a little bit of money. But in 12 months' time, if the concept's working and we're making money and people like it, um, you guys pay me back what I've put in. It's an interest-free loan. You can have the business and I'll continue to grow and develop it. And, yeah. and that's what we did. So we, I did a couple of gyms with them under a different brand called Jimmy Squats. Um, I did two others, one in Richmond and one in um, uh, Yarraville, and just made a, made a hell of a lot of mistakes, <laughs> learned, learned a lot of lessons, blew a lot of money, um, and, and that's where it all started. And, and, and I, I loved it. I, I just I lo- I loved it. I've still got photos of um, fitting out the gyms with the boys, laying rubber flooring, teaching them how to do, you know, how to lift lift weights, how to, how to, you know, do kettlebell cleans and snatches. And I've still got all the photos I did of the training with the guys in the early days. And um, I just saw what they got out of it and how much excitement and passion they had for it too and what they were getting out of it. And, um, you know, them being elite athletes, they felt like they were passing on a little bit and giving people a really awesome experience as well in a general fitness setting. And it just grew from there. I was like, you know what, if, if we can continue to build this with the right intentions and be able to share this with people and give them a really good training methodology that um, that is going to help them to progress and help them to you know not stagnate but learn skills. You know, weight training is a skill, mm. and so mm. our programs are progressive, and we 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 program in eight week training cycles, and um, we develop people up through that eight weeks so that they're really proficient at the end of it with their lifting. And um, is it perfect? Absolutely no no way. But that's the opportunity. You know, the opportunity now is the thousand trainers in our network and, and giving them the tools to be the best and to deliver the programs 
in the best possible way to the members so the members have a great member experience. And if we continue to do that, and we're, we're really investing a lot in education at the moment, um, that's the challenge for 2022 is to, to, to make the trainees in our network as best as they possibly can be. And it's super exciting, you know, and the good thing about the business is it continually evolves in terms of the needs. Um, you know, initially it's getting just feeding down the programs and the format and the equipment and, 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 you know, your operations manuals. And then it's about establishing the brand and getting recognized. And now it's really about the quality of trainers and making sure that with so many trainers coming into our network, that we absolutely have a really high baseline level of competency um, because not every trainer can come in, you know, it no, doesn't matter whether they've done a uni degree or a Cert 3, not every trainer will have experienced Olympic lifting or will have experienced kettlebells mm. and can therefore teach someone how to do even a kettlebell swing, let alone a kettlebell clean or a snatch, you know, a, a really explosive dynamic movement. A lot can go wrong, so we need to give them the tools to be their best, and and I'm super excited about that. Like it's just an awesome opportunity. It's a great challenge and, and one that I and the team that I work with in the programming side of things and education in our business um, are really really excited about. Really excited about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate, and, and well done. It's it's taken off in Australia, and I know um, probably later on in the podcast you mentioned about the America trip, but. Um, how did that connection happen in America? Like, how did you get it outside of? Did they just start hearing the noise from from down under, or uh, talk? Uh, sorry, are you, are you talking about franchisees or the recent sale? Uh, the franchisees, and then yeah, and then the recent sale. Yeah, well, as you know, I'm not one massive for, for social media. I know you tried me for a long time, and I, I never look at my LinkedIn, and never looked at my. I've never posted anything on Instagram, so um, but the power of social media is phenomenal, and um, America and Singapore grew organically just through social media, and people looking at uh, our franchisees in Australia social media pages and looking at their hype reels and just the different way that we were training, and it, it absolutely blows my mind that um, you know we could be doing something in Melbourne or Adelaide, and someone in Santa Monica in California's picking up the phone and ringing and saying, hey, guys, I love what you're doing. Can I be the first franchisee in America? And it's, it's just mind-blowing. And, and I think, you know, in some way, my experiences in London when I, I spent three years there really opened my eyes up to the world, the globe. And I talked earlier about young S&Cs coming out of uni, you know, look for opportunities to work in, in global sports. You know, you, AFL might be where you want to go, but... And it's a great, it's an awesome opportunity. It's a great career, but it's in Australia. And so go for it, go for an international sport, go for something that's global or, you know, that you'll end up at the Olympics. And for me, working in London opened my eyes up to there's this whole world. And I no longer just have to think about my, my life in Melbourne and my career in Melbourne, because there's all this other opportunity out there that I just never knew existed, to be quite honest. And, um, the social media and what it's done for our business on that front has been phenomenal. Um, most of our growth in Singapore has been completely organic through social media and we've sold out half of our capacity in Singapore in about 18 months just through social media um, and not spending $1, which just blows my mind. Um, so, yeah, that that's come through somewhat good fortune. Um, and then the recent acquisition, um, we sold our American business and our IP to a, to a huge big American company, Exponential Fitness. They're a publicly listed company on the NASDAQ. 
um, wear their 10th brand in America. Um, that just came to an introduction from someone in the industry who said, hey, you know what? I was talking to this CEO of this company. You guys would get on like a house on fire. I'm going to introduce you two guys. And that introduction and a couple of casual chats turned to him saying, hey, I've actually sent my sales guys down to your Santa Monica site to do a few sessions. Can we have a talk about potentially buying your US business? And I was like, this is just crazy. Like, this is out of control crazy. So, um, yeah, really fortunate. Um, great, fantastic partners for us. And they're going to provide, with, provide us a lot of support and really help us to fast track more, I guess, the tech, the tech side of our business and get that in the hands of members. And, um, yeah, I'm super excited about that opportunity as well. So it's, it's funny how the world works. And um, I, I talked earlier about, you know, having the glass half full lens is way better than the other one. And if you continue to have that, any S&C, your career is going to do this. It just, hopefully it does that. And, you know, like a nice periodized um, graph, but yeah. um, you are going to have ups and downs and, you know, just every down, just look at the opportunity, you know, yeah, you can crack the shits and you can have some downtime. There's nothing wrong with that, but look at the opportunity and, um, I've, I've certainly been super fortunate in my career and my life um, to be able to look at that and just, just picking up that phone and calling this guy who I had no idea who he was on the other side of the world in the middle of COVID. It's not like I was going to go and have a beer with him and, and go and grab a coffee or meet face-to-face. Um, we're talking on a Zoom, never met each other. And funnily enough, we spoke for about an hour and 50 minutes and it, and it seemed like 30 minutes. And then I kind of knew then that yeah, this guy's on the same level in terms of what he wants to achieve and his passion and everything else. I really liked him. And, um, and then here we are, you know, now we're in business together. So uh, it's, it's a strange world. and You've just got to be open to those opportunities. You know, you just never know what's around the corner. Yeah. That's awesome, mate. We'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into the, the, the lighter side of the podcast now. This is the personal get to know Cam uh, segment. So the first one, mate, <laughs> is uh, which movie or, or TV series has uh, impacted you the most and why? Um, yeah, I heard someone on one of your podcasts saying the Rocky series the other day. I, I must admit, I'm a massive fan of the Rocky series. Yeah. Um, I really love the 30 for 30, the ESPN series. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, 30 for 30, it's just it's a series of sports documentaries. They all go for 30 minutes. Um, I'm just fascinated by what makes people tick and what is it that makes successful people successful. And Success is a very broad term, by the way, and, and it's what you define as success because it's not the same for everyone. But I just, it just fascinates me on what makes you know, organisations successful, sporting organisations, um, could, be, could be the corporate world as well, um, what makes individuals success, really successful, um, especially individuals that have been told most of their life that maybe they're just, they don't have the talent. You know, like Tom Brady is just such a great example of that. Yeah. Told he's going to be, you know, he's too slow, hasn't got the arm. You know, he's, he's gone down and he's still playing footy in his 40s and he's one of the greatest of all time. So I, I love the 30 for 30 series and, um, you know, there's no, there's no one magic bullet. It's, you know, you can see an athlete that, that just doesn't perform in one environment, goes to another environment, doesn't perform and gets to the third environment for whatever reason, performance goes through the roof. And there just could be so many factors um, that are involved in that. So what are they and, and what was it that made the penny drop for that athlete? You know, was it just environmental? Was it their, their own psychology and their, you know, their own realisation that they had to do more and be more professional or change the way that they were doing things in their lifestyle? So I really love the 30 for 30 series. I love anything that talks about 
um, what makes people tick. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah definitely one to check out. Um, Favourite inspirational quote or life motto? Uh, this comes from Michael Jordan. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah, that's on par with the, the question before. That's a, that's a good one. I don't think that's popped up yet, funnily enough. Um, and then uh, this one, in, in your work life, um, what's your pet peeve? What makes you angry? Um, there's probably two things. So uh, this is very Australian. I, I can't stand tall poppy syndrome in Australia. It drives me crazy. Um, people who, who reach the pinnacle work so hard to get there and then we just want to chop them down in Australia. So I can't stand that. Um, uh, I think this is probably going to be a bit harsh. And, and, and as you know, I'm not on social media, but um, fitness influencers and gurus, fitness gurus on social media. Um, who look fantastic and spruik everything um, because they're getting paid to, but actually can't lift weights. So that drives me absolutely batty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good to hear someone say it as well. Um, what, what's your favourite way to spend your day off? Uh, funny enough, training. Um, I, I, if I go on holidays or have a day off, I actually train more than I do when I'm working. I love mountain biking. It's something I do with my boys. We love whether it's getting out to the Yuyangs or down a forest here in West Victoria or heading over to, Derby, um, Derby in um, Tasmania. Yep. So doing some sort of exercise. And then the other thing I love is I love, I love food and I love uh, a beer or a red wine. So I try and have a pretty balanced day off with have a good sweat session and, and get some exercise in and then enjoy the fruits of my labour with some good food or wine. Yeah. And then uh, favourite, this is COVID-free world, uh, favourite holiday destination and why? Oh, mate, I... I'd have to say Bali, and, and I, hate, I actually hate to say that. Um, again, like I said, when I go on holiday, I actually really like to train, and it's such a conducive environment to train. And um, life's so cheap over there, so I've been fortunate that family holidays, we've gone over and hired a villa and had a chef. And um, to be able to train in such awesome weather, um, come back to a pool at your villa with your kids, have someone cooking food for you, I, I, I don't know, it ticks a lot of boxes. Six yeah. a hell of a lot of boxes. Bikes are cheap at the moment too. <laughs> are they? Yeah, I'll have to check them out. <laughs> um, yeah, big fan of Bali. It's a special spot and, and for the surfers as well. As, uh, I've never surfed in Bali yet, but uh, it's definitely on the list of things to do for uh, hopefully 22, hey? Absolutely. Um, oh, awesome, mate. Thank you so much for, for sharing your journey. And I know I've taken a lot out of it and no doubt uh, everyone that's tuned in and listened live or, or listening in the podcast world at whatever date that is um, will take a lot out of it as well. Um, you've got an America trip uh, on the horizon. What are, some, what are some things you're excited about with that? And then what else is uh, – uh, well, that's probably the main thing to be excited about at the moment. But is there anything else that you're pumped up about for the rest of the year? Yeah, um, the, yeah, the American Trick's exciting. Um, Exponential Fitness, who we've just partnered with in the US, they've got their big national conference. So that's in Las Vegas. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. I've never been to Vegas. I hear it's a pretty good place to, uh, to get to and party. So coming from Melbourne and being locked down for the last 18 months, um, hair down, you never know. But um, so I'm excited. That, I'm excited to meet the people over there. They, they've got, as I said, nine other brands that they operate you know, with nearly 2,000 franchises in America. So what a great opportunity to learn off those people. Um, and, and then I'm really excited, as I said, we're building out our education in, in BFT at the moment and um, we're really launching that heavily in 2022. And so it's an awesome opportunity, as I said, to um, 
I, so, as much share knowledge and, and, and train and help others, but whenever I'm in that environment where you're doing face-to-face training, the thing I love about it is I always learn as well and get something back. So, um, yeah, really excited for 22. It's on a personal front. I think it's going to be a, a really big year, um, family and business. Um, and, and as I said, yeah, the business, is, the, the, the opportunities at the moment, the business is in a spot where I'm really enjoying it, um, having heaps of fun and, Getting to getting to do what I love to do, which is to train and educate and um, and, and get out in front of people. So um, yeah, it's exciting, mate. I'm really looking forward to the end of the year in 2022. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Thanks so much again, and and yeah, really excited to see what uh, big things lie ahead for body fit training. So um, yeah, thanks thanks again for joining on, and for those that have tuned in as well, um, well done for for staying with us. It's been um, an hour and 48 minutes, so we've, we've done well. If uh, well, Cam's done well. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that long. Um, good work. For those that are tuned in, if you have any questions, feel free to send them our way. And our next live interview will be with Matthew McGregor, who's a sports psychologist for the AFLPA, and he, he's recently just worked at Hawthorne Football Club as well. So that will be next Tuesday. That is the 23rd of November at 8.30 p.m. I'll see you guys then. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Jack. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian at the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. 
Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.